Coming up this week, we'll be talking about the election in Belarus, Hezbollah, and the IRA revival. It's a non-state actor special, all coming up this week on News from a Boring Dystopia. Welcome back to the third episode of News from a Boring Dystopia. And this week sure has been one for the dystopian end of that phrase. Uh, how are you guys doing this week? It's hot. There's fire tornadoes in California. It's end times for me. Yeah, and meanwhile, it's, it's Brazil, winter. So yeah, winter in Brazil. Yeah, winter in Brazil. I mean, especially in the southern part. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, for our listeners that who doesn't live in Brazil, especially in Rio, winter for us here is C4. That's like uh, summer in Boston. <laughs> no, no, it's it's been it's actually been super hot here. It's been like ninety degrees. We've had a heat wave. So. Sorry guys, because Houston. I don't know how it's ninety degrees in Fahrenheit. Oh, uh, what is that like? Oh yeah, it's thirty-two. Oh, thirty-two yeah, for us. Thirty-two for us is like a uh, I don't know a cold day in mm-hmm. the summer because yeah. um, the temperature here is like a hundred and more than hundred. Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. real real yeah. summer. Yeah, well, when I was in Brazil uh, over our winter, so your summer, uh, I was in Manaus, so it was pretty hot there. <laughs> yeah, I think Manaus is worse because always hot. I mean, uh-huh. always hot, and it's very wet. I mean, yeah. the dampness. I've never seen so I've never seen rains like that, and of course, like it, it is a rainforest, so you know you get what you yeah. pay for, but. I've never seen water come down so fast. Literally, people were uh, trying to unclog the street drains with brooms and stuff like that. There's random debris everywhere. Uh, I was sitting in a coffee shop doing some work, and the water level in the street just kept rising. Like, you could see it going up. I was getting worried when I started seeing the people in the store, like, going to the door and, like, looking out. And It's a lot of water. It's a lot of water. Yeah, it's a lot of water. I have a friend that comes from northern Brazil. I mean, there is Manaus and there is the other state called Pará mm-hmm. and this capital of this is called Belém. So this friend of mine comes from Belém. And Belém, uh, they have the, like expression, oh, you want to do it before or after the rain? Because yeah. there always, every day rains down mm-hmm. there, especially like uh, 5, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. So they always say it's after or before the rain. I mean, it's a rainforest. What can you say? There's a fen- phenomenon called the uh, aerial rivers. I never seen it because I mean, it doesn't happen in all Brazil, just in the northern mm-hmm. part of it. Like uh, the amount of water in the clouds are so so huge that you can almost see uh, like a flux of water yeah. uh, above you. Wow. Called aerial rivers. I never seen this, but people say it's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Well, I mean, from what I've seen of the Amazon, it's, uh, I mean, it's a very impressive, I mean, it's massive. As far as you can see, trees, yeah, such a cool place to be. And Manaus is a cool city in general because, I mean, it's a big city. And it's just in the middle of the forest. So this week, the big news stories, we were looking at the um, the USPS in the United States. And uh, the Americans listening will be very familiar with 
uh, the debate over vote in mail or vote by mail, excuse me, as the uh, primary or what we would like to see uh, as the primary form of voting uh, come November, the presidential election, in order to avoid health risks relating to poll workers and also people casting the votes themselves. Um, there's been a huge push for large scale vote by mail. And this has been very largely opposed by the Republican Party, who have been pushing this idea of voter fraud relating to this. And there's really no evidence supporting the idea that, as Trump said, people's dogs are getting ballots. So it's kind of just frustrating uh, that um, this large scale voter suppression is taking place. I was wondering what, what you guys' thoughts were on that. Yeah, I'm talking about this later. Uh, uh-huh. But it's definitely it's definitely uh, some form of cronyism going. There's definitely some right. form of cronyism going on with it. And the thing that's so gross about it is that the people that are being put to basically defund the Postal Service, they're lying tooth and nail every step of the way. They're saying, oh, that they're like nonpartisan actors and that their their interests are to basically make the Postal Service more efficient. And it's just, it's just, um, people are just not being honest about their intentions. I think that that's even more frustrating from my, from my part. Yeah. Was it last week? There was a reporter at a press briefing who I loved it. He just straight up like looked Trump in the eye and he asked him, you know, do you regret lying to the American people? And then I think Trump just looked at him and was like, what? And he was like, do you, do you ever feel bad that you have said all these lies to the American people and misled so many people? And he just looked at him for a second and then he just moved on. But you could tell he was so flustered after. More people need to like tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. Because, yeah, yeah, because he, well, as we've learned, he lives in this bubble. uh, His staffers create this kind of insulated environment for him where everything goes his way and i obviously it's a very dangerous thing for any world leader but it's also just kind of sad i think you know it's just and like i think the whole it's just a bad situation it's a a time when more than ever it's just being so discredited and Mm. well just a just an entire (laughs) failure to recognize the destruction and death caused by virus it is what it is as as the president said so literally no no recognition of a problem or you know the desire to express any kind of moral leadership or support um it's it's just 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 not helpful in the air like yeah you know we're not gonna do it else that's it it's done yeah Um, and then and then you you tag on the you know active voter suppression going on that is endorsed large scale by the Republican Party and pushed as a policy. You just have, I don't even have the words to describe it. I mean, it's yeah, just frightening. I, know, I mean, it's a, like a little bit speechless. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Really, like there's, it's one thing to have like a leader like Trump and how such, you know, that's one thing, like, you know, might not agree with many of his policies. And then it's a whole nother thing of an established part of the Republican Party that has its values, you know, that like, you know, some of them I might may not agree with, but they have like their values of low taxing, encouraging businesses, you know, these types of like conservative values. And then they're just enabling. And, and like you said, it's just like shameless voter suppression, you know, these types of attacks on the other side that just so just so crazy you know it's just mm-hmm. like like you said we even have the words for it because it's just so it's just it's, it is truly like a threat to like the democracy in the country and that's that's always what drives me crazy you know like people are like oh give him a chance you know he, he was democratically elected yes he was the, he was democratically elected and give him a chance but it's not right for uh like trump and the, Repu- the broader republican party to start like infringing people's rights and upon the values and, and the basics that make america great you know absolutely uh in brazil uh 
a president is like was self-denominated. I think he was self-denominated, but if not, I mean, he likes the title that he's the punk from tropics. Uh, he loves this comparison. He's like, um, we say he's a Trump, Trump little dog. It's yeah. commonly commonly spoken here in Brazil. Yeah, it's totally it is. Uh, yeah, and, and and it's funny because he like tries to kind of like kiss up to Trump at every opportunity, and Trump will just be like, uh, like, <laughs> okay, 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 yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, he says a fr uh, tr uh, Donald Trump, friends, something. Yeah, exactly. They have a, a, a direct contact to each other. Uh -huh. I mean. Okay, Trump feels like, okay, but who are you? <laughs> uh, uh, like Mara Carey says about Jennifer Lopez, like, I don't know her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh and people like Bro says that Bolsonaro was voted his he was majority voted for him. The, Brazil uh is not like United States. I mean here's a, a direct vote, so that counts and not like the electoral college. Yeah, yeah, there's no type of thing like here. Mm -hmm. So he was elected with the majority. It's not a great majority, but a majority. And there was a lot of people who absent their vote or voted for their uh, center left party, which is like the work party. Mm. And and people was like saying that, and as a populist government, Bolsonaro started to face some problems. I mean, uh, he promised something in the campaign, but I mean, the all the the own structure of how politics works doesn't 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 let him do what he wants to do as right. everybody else. And, yeah. uh, you have to create alliance. And he was like uh, this anti-establishment guy, the guy that was like, oh, I'll do the politics as a, a, a person from the people who's not like, uh, I'm tired of this corruption stuff. I mean, the, the discourse that we have already heard People in Brazil, like uh, his supporters, said that the country is not working as as they thought it would be because there are people. Listen to this: there are people rooting against the president. So <laughs> I mean, here, Bruno, uh, a middle class guy, mind of my business, I'm rooting for the president to fall. So so it's it's not letting his own work. I mean, in a failure because of other people, not because of his own. So, and, and there is a, there is a, this type of discourse as I, as Lilo was, Lilo was talking, I mean, he produced, I mean, it's the same, I mean, it's not the same because, I mean, the, the realities are different, but I mean, uh, the type of behavior, I mean, this, the essence, I think the same. Right. The populist governments and populist supporters. Mm -hmm. so. I forget who said it, but I recently heard a good quote that was, if conservatives are forced to choose between conservatism and democracy, they'll choose conservatism every time. And I think that's pretty true. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a cultural value that I think some people hold above politics. And uh, obviously, I think that's very dangerous. No, yeah, yeah. Brazil, uh, when Bolsonaro was elected... He said the the minority because the majority voted for him. So he said like the minority because I mean he's he's a very binary guy like wrong, right, black, white. Uh, Good evil, yeah. Yeah, if yeah. If you're not with us, you're against us. So yeah, against yeah, us, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the minority, he said the minority as a whole. I mean whatever it means. Okay, uh, the minority as a whole has bound down right. for the majority because the majority elected the president. So. This type of president we have right now here. 
So it's, uh, he praises the dict uh, dictatorship torturers and somebody and some some his supporters say it's okay. He said that should be a, a there should be a civil war here in Brazil to cope the problems of Brazil corruption. So like. And and, the, and there are people who buy it. I mean, yeah. who buy the discourse and like it and propagating it. So it's 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 very it's very it's very sad because I mean, uh, you're putting a person because I mean, I I think here in Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro supporters is not like a conservative supporters of conservatives or I mean, uh, far right uh, principles. I mean, they're Bolsonaro supporter, person supporter. So you put in a person above all the democratics that Brazil's, which uh, who's a Brazilian one is kind of fragile mm -hmm. and new. We suffer a coup d'état. So I mean, we're trying to deal with this. I mean, more properly. And but here in Brazil, we 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 see United States. I mean, uh, as Bolsonaro said, he's a, a Trump from the tropics. And when Trump does things like pro democracy, like uh, not claiming or asking for a military coup or something, or threatening democracy as a, oh, I'm going to carry out a coup d'etat or something. Uh, in Brazil, Bolsonaro does that. So we say, okay, if you're trying to do Miro Trump in yourself, please do the right job. I mean, not, do not uh, drag the worst of him and put in yourself. And, and mm. so, yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated, yeah. but I hope God in 20, 2024, <laughs> as in elections, yeah. this guy will oust yeah. it. Okay. Uh, Leila, did you have something? If, if you're a Bolsonaro supporter and listen to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stab me. Create a new podcast and and and, and cope with my argument. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say it's like kind of this like strong man, this, mm -hmm. the emergence of the strong man. You know, very like um, aggressive and, and like, not trying to reach consensus consensus at all with the other side and to like work with the other side. It's just like. You know, it's it's this way or the highway of approach we're seeing yeah. in like, the world. So well, and and coupled with this kind of reactionary sentiment, nationalistic sentiments as well. All the all in response to you know rising globalism and trends in the uh, in the international yeah, system as a whole. Yeah, kind of yeah. But I mean, speaking of strong men, uh, there's a certain strong man in Eastern Europe who's been there for a while and he's not looking so good. Antonio, you want to take this one? Uh, Belarus had an election that many countries do not recognize because they view it as fraudulent. Alexander Lukashenko, who is deeply unpopular with the people of Belarus, is suspected to have cheated the election and is using corruption to retain power. Uh, an uprising that occurred was met with a show of force where people were horribly abused and some were even raped with police batons. Uh, the tactic was used, obviously, to discourage citizens from affecting change within their country. And, and this repression was described by The Economist as ostentatious, you know, very, very flagrant repression and repressive tactics. And, and now there are many parallels between this story that, that can be drawn, especially when you look at how the police are essentially driven to enforce these atrocities and are basically given an us versus them mentality with regards to their perspectives on the protesters. And in my opinion, the most interesting parallel is how when a leader is being threatened by the democratic will of the people, 
that they turn to repression, actually, just like Trump. And my question is, what causes this to happen? You were, you were say, stating earlier that you were thinking that it has to do with globalization. Um, and, and I have a different take on it. So, so just to look at President Trump, like we were talking about, President Trump, just to reiterate, is not doing very well in the polls. He's down. Uh, some polls say that he was down by 9%. Uh, the, the gap, I have heard that the gap has been closing. At, at some, at one point, yeah, the lead was substantially closed, and um, but Biden's still above the margin of error in a lot of key swing states. But this is not the whole story. Biden still has quite a lot of obstacles because Trump has a trick up his sleeve, like you were saying with the uh, with the ballot with the ballot initiative. Um, Trump is underfunding the postal service. He's not technically underfunding the postal service because uh, it's not a publicly funded institution. But he is putting people in power. He's putting people into the Postal Service that are systematically gutting it. Like you were saying, Louis DeJoy was the person that was that was in charge of it. And and many in the media, and this is something that that's kind of frustrating, is that people in the media are kind of reporting what Louis DeJoy, his stated intentions are, like I was saying earlier, that, that they're for uh, fair, you know, creating e- efficient reforms within the Postal Service, where... In reality, it's just to underfund it and gut it. And um, if, if Trump is able to make the mail in process too slow, that's that's his goal. It's to make it too slow in order to have the ballots arrive on time. The votes actually will not count. And, and if this is done in key swing states, defunding the postal service, so mail-in ballots don't work. Biden is expected to underperform by four percent, which is in some in some polls his lead. Um, you know, it's according to the data from the Economist. Now. I know why this has happened. Trump wants to win just like Lukashenko did. And and I know in a fair election, he would lose. Uh, that's not a mystery. But my question is, why is this happening? More, more referring to the cause of this type of corruption, corruption more along the lines of like a more developing nation. And, and so answering these questions with regards to why some countries are more corrupt than others is extremely complicated. It, I looked at a variety of studies and none of them had the same causal factors. And, and, and I basically got the message that there are just like a variety of studies. So globalization is probably definitely a major factor, but it's just super complex. And globalization obviously encompasses a lot of different things. Um, but one thing, one really interesting way to look at corruption in a country uh, is something that I had learned from just uh, playing on my iPhone. It, it's a game called Dictator. Dictator is a game where you're a dictator of some made-up country and it's your goal to remain in power, just like every elected official, just like every basically political actor. And you can never win the game of dictator, but you can beat your record of time remained in power. And in this game, you try to please different powerful interest groups. There are the capitalists, the police, the, uh, and the revolutionaries, like the Antifa people, etc. And, and you would not be able to please everyone with your decisions. If you count out too much to the police, for example, even though, you know, the police, you know, are, are you know, uh, a constituent of, of Trump and probably uh, of Lukashenko. I, from the from the readings that I had read, Lukashenko is also deeply uh, deeply invested in the police. But if you kowtow to anybody too much in particular, you would eventually be overthrown. And if you got any of these groups to be too upset with you too consistently, then you would be overthrown. So it could, it could be the police, it could be the wealthy, it could even be the revolutionaries and just the common people. So I tried to play the dictator game with as a zero corruption, basically like Bernie Sanders style dictator who would like think in the interest of the working class. And do you think, do you think I set a personal record in the game playing as Bernie Sanders in this dictator game? What, what do you think? Anyway, 
Uh, I think you were overthrown by the wealthy ones. Exactly. I was overthrown <laughs> by the wealthy. So, yeah. No. I don't want to be Marxist or something, but... <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I got some of my lowest scores being an ideologue basically in any direction. Being a neoliberal corporate crony got me overthrown. Being a, poli- a pro-police thin, line, thin blue line dictator got me overthrown. But there was something that I did in this game that I think is applicable to both Trump and to um, Lukashenko. Lukashenko. Um, it was being oppressive to people outside of my political coalition and rewarding my supporters, wh- whether it was the wealthy, whether it was the people, whether it was even like Antifa revolutionaries. And ultimately, power in every form of government is about creating a political coalition large enough to win the political process. Not necessarily a democratic coalition, but a political coalition. As much as the Democrats in the United States preach unity, due to the winner-take-all nature of electoral politics, the Republicans have an incentive to make decisions that repress outsiders and lose no votes because their coalition is happy with the political outcomes. And and importantly, this is not only uh, a voter coalition, like I was saying, uh, it also, one big factor in both coalitions with the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and I'm assuming also with Lukashenko, is the coalition with the top 1%, basically like the capitalist class uh, of this dictatorship game. And and clearly Lukashenko knows his political coalitions. And importantly, this is not only a voter coalition because rulings like Citizens United where campaign donations are speech it, it is a key factor to your coalition starting now. Clearly Lukashenko knows his political coalitions and understands that these repressive actions to... Um, the failures of the democratic process of Belarus will allow him to maintain power. It is very rational and in, the self inter- uh, in his self-interest to act horribly and abuse the citizens. It makes sense in a country with stark income inequality, a history of racism. One major interest group for Trump are obviously white supremacists, gerrymandering, and powerful police unions that despite ideals that the democratic process should be defined by the voters, in practice, the democratic process is being defined by the political coalition necessary to win. Trump has an advantage in having corrupt U.S. government officials in his political coalition. And government does not always reflect the the people. It is probably more accurate to say that government reflects the power dynamics at play, and power, unfortunately, can be a means to its own end. Absolutely. I think that's a a really interesting way to look at it, because often we live in a democracy, uh, all of us, and we often kind of associate um the democratic politics that go into uh you know western liberal forms of government to this this idea of political coalitions but in reality there's much more at play than simply the system i mean if you look at the amount of money put into uh u.s politics by special interest groups it's insane i mean uh i think it's fair to argue that in fact the majority of legislation is not written it's written by these companies and special interest groups in order to promote their causes and uh, push their political agendas. And, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good, sometimes it's in the best interest of the people, but that's the thing. It's always the the people who hold the power and who are in that political coalition that are able to enact change. Kind of a pessimistic way to view it, I guess. But I think a democracy gives the people the best chance to bargain at that same table as the other political powers in the traditional sense. I would definitely think that it would empower a lot of the common people, the, d- the democracy. But it's important to keep in mind that it's not just the democracy. It's right. also, like I was saying, the many powerful classes. Mm, 
for sure. And I mean, there's certainly a case to be made that the United States is much more of an oligarchy than a democracy or a republic. Um, and it's that that's a, a, a very kind of different approach to take, kind of approaching the same issue from the different direction. But I think Belarus, uh, one of the things that needs to be taken into account is the example played by Russia. And I'm sure that um, you have you, you all have something to say in terms of the role that Russia plays in propping up Lukashenko. Um, I believe Putin is currently in Minsk, or and, along with, I think, the second in command in the diplomatic service in Belarus. I'm not sure. But there's some high-level talks going on with Lukashenko in terms of uh, what his plan is and, and uh, you know, what we're looking forwards at in terms of Belarus. Obviously, it's in Putin's best interest to uh, yeah, maintain stability. Yeah. I've read that Putin called Angela Merkel said that he's worried about uh, foreign powers meddling to the to the Belarus internal matters. So I mean, because Lukashenko, it's considered Putin as a really ally. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, I, I'd say even more than an ally, uh, Belarus as a landlocked nation uh, is pretty much reliant on the. Uh, um, imports from Russia and also the gas lines that run through Belarus yeah, to Europe. Yeah, even the name, right? Even yeah. the name Belarus. I mean, Rus from Russia is. Yeah. I mean, there there, there was a, like a poll or something, or a great part of the the population agrees to be an exit to the Russia itself, being part of the Russian nation. I mean, being controlled yeah. by Moscow. And and of course, uh, during the Soviet Union era, it was one of the most important uh, Soviet socialist republics. You know, up there with Ukraine and um, Kazakhstan. Yeah. So you know, it's certainly not insignificant, and there's definitely international interests involved. So it's not it's not just simple domestic politics. We have to look at look at the whole picture. Yeah, because I mean, uh, it's right, it's right, locating the. The border of the European Union and mm-hmm. NATO and and the Russia influence spheres. So the I mean, the the, the gas the gas pipelines that run through yeah, Belarus are pipeline. critical to Europe. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's more than democratic or authoritarian values at stake. And it's a geopolitical game core. As I I I seen in through the way. I don't know if you guys. Yeah. Well, so what do you think that the results are going to be then? Uh, do you think it's likely that Lukashenko is going to be deposed? Do you, do you think that that's pretty much out of the question? What are your, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Uh, like I was saying, I think that leaders like Lukashenko are potentially acting in their self-interest. They repress their citizens because it's a means of preventing them from being overthrown if they, were, if they basically have like a fear campaign against the people as a, as a bloc. And then with regards to Russia, I think that you can definitely see Russia as a key a key element of, of creating a political coalition in Belarus, Russian mm. interests, Russian kind of like... I would be also. curious. Uh, I would be curious to see the overlap in the oligarchs between Russia and Belarus. Like how many of the Russian oligarchs own, you know, state-run corporations in Belarus and vice versa? How much of this, how much, you know, besides just the separate political systems, how much of this personally overlaps? Because uh, plenty of the Russian oligarchs, I'm sure, must own a stake, at least in uh, state corporations in Belarus and stuff like that. So I would be, I, I don't know, I don't have any of the numbers offhand, but I would be curious to know, uh, like, the people behind who own this. Because in a lot of the cases, especially with, like, Russia and former Soviet states, these oligarchs are very colorful people that live very colorful lives. They use their money in 
always really strange ways. And it's always interesting to me to see the houses that these people build and stuff. Because, you know, what else are you going to do when you're that fabulously wealthy? That's an interesting... I'm never optimistic in these cases. <laughs> I'm always, like, very pessimistic like the, when it comes to the will of the people. Especially because it's, it's something that, um, like you guys are saying, it's something that occurring the police on the on the um on the regime side and it's something that is i don't know this this type of these types of movements really require quite a bit of persistence and mm. it involves a lot of violence and right i don't know but i'm just the middle eastern pessimist right here so like <laughs> well i mean speaking of uh long-standing violent movements do you want to talk a little bit about hezbollah sure i like talk, talking about pessimism and like um yeah so this week um Mostly because of what happened in Beirut a few weeks ago with the uh, blast at the point, um, because there have been protests for months now, almost a year. Frustrated, uh, they were obviously with the uh, blast at the port and um, this understanding because of the negligence on the part of the government. Um, so uh, I'm just going to back up for a moment, talk a little bit about Hezbollah. Uh, if I go over, tell me to stop. Don't worry about like it. Very, like, yeah, go, go into it. Um, but Hezbollah is essentially a political and military group that is uh, based in Lebanon. It's a Shiite group and heavily backed by Iran. Um, they they emerged during the Lebanese Civil War, so that was early 1980s. They were inspired basically a revolution in uh, in uh, 1970, they like a group of Shiite fighters got together and they began unleashing violent acts on uh, Israeli targets on Western targets. Um, in 1985, they were officially established as Hezbollah with a manifesto that expressed opposition to the West uh, as well as Soviets, uh, and they pledged allegiance to. Um, so right now, uh, so as a Hezbollah started out as a force, but now they're fully integrated into the state's political system. The power in the, the current level uh, is a Hezbollah ally, the one that um, uh, had resigned, uh, that one that resigned just in the Al port blast was uh, um, the Occupy Large Territories of Lebanon. They provide extensive social services to the population, makes them very favorable, not just the Shia, but also other uh, sects, uh, including Sunni Muslims and Christians in Lebanon. So I'll talk a little bit as well. Uh, so I don't too much into the history, because a very long and extensive history, but I just want to talk about a few highlights uh, in terms of uh, when they actually uh, integrated into elections was 1992. Um, they were designated as a terrorist organization by the United States in 1997 because they were um, engaging terrorist attacks uh, in the region as well as abroad. Um, they were attacking Israeli Jewish uh, targets as well as uh, American targets. Um, and just some other highs. In 2005, the minister of Rafiq Hariri, he was assassinated, and the United Nations blamed Hezbollah, and Hezbollah blamed Israel. Um, and I'll talk relevance of that as well uh, as we go. Um, so essentially, some lights. In 2008, the Western-backed uh, Lebanese government tried to shut down uh, the activities of Hezbollah. And basically, Hezbollah uh, responded by um, retaliating, by ensuing violence against the Sunni population in Beirut, and the government and just backing down. Uh, run for for elections and being integrated into the political system. So they uh, gradually started gaining more seats in parliament. In the most recent elections in 2018, uh, they won 13 out of Lebanon's um, 128-member parliament. So a little over 10%. When you group that uh, those number of seats with the seats of their allies, they ended up having 70 seats in a parliament that has 128 seats. So quite a significant amount of uh, of um, of seats and present in the parliament. I think it's also so, very important to note that the the Lebanese system is a confessional system. Mm -hmm. So, uh, seats are awarded based on uh, religious uh, denomination. So, 
Like, uh, I believe the president has to be um, Christian. Jimmy the prime minister Mike. has to be uh, Sunni. And the mm-hmm. um, it was the speaker of parliament, I believe, it has mm-hmm. to be yeah. Yeah. Shiite. Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah, so so makes... the seats are divided up on religious basis, on a du jour. There's no... In the, uh, there's no separation of church and state. In fact, it's very closely combined together We're in a sh- yeah. power sharing system. Yeah, and that's really like, I mean, not to go too much on a tangent, yeah, but that's yeah. really the reason. Uh, but yeah, thank you for bringing up, first of all. And then that's that's part of the uh, the civil war ensued in 1870 mm-hmm. because of a lot of tensions in that system. It's a delicate system. Um, they haven't taken a census in uh, Lebanon since the 1930s because they don't want to change those numbers. It's a proportional system based on the people. It's very, very... Um, so with Hezbollah, you have um, what's really, like I think, fascinating, just just crazy about Hezbollah is the fact uh, it has loyalty that transcend Lebanon. It gets uh, $700 annually on uh, in weapons and other support. Are, um, they also have support from Syria. They are fighting off the Syrian regime. And uh, in exchange, uh, Syria transports supplies from Iran to has no questions asked. Uh, they have fighters in Yemen, Iraq. They have very wide all over the region. And they've been designated a terrorist organization by uh, the European Union, the Arab League, Arab states, uh, or like the Gulf states. And obviously because the Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia, to counter and Iran's influence in the region. Um, so it brings me to what's going on now, which the reason I'm about Hezbollah this week. So as I mentioned before, since uh, 2019, there have just protests since the civil war triggered by economic problems. It led the uh, prime minister at the time, Saad al-Hadi, to resign. He's the son of Rafi al-Hadi, who was assassinated in 2005. Um, a new government was finally formed in May of 2020, uh, but people were still angry. They were still uh, protesting, and they said that they were a technocratic government unaffiliated with these groups and organizations. So um, where like Hezbollah is now very like entrenched in the institutions and they, they've uh, created uh, allyships with a lot of different groups, with, with the Christian groups, with all sorts of groups uh, right now. But um, the issue is that Hezbollah is now finding itself in a very cool situation because they rely on Iran for its support and it's backing this money. But they are also these, uh, in a situation where like, Lebanon has really serious economic woes where Lebanon needs help from the Western world. Um, they applied for a loan IMF and they were turned down. Um, and there's a fear that Hezbollah is now isolated from the West. Um, so I'll give you guys an example with the port blast that occurred uh, earlier this month. Um, so the, the Hezbollah allied government actually ended up resigning aftermath of the explosion. Um, there's a two-week state of emergency that was announced that ends up giving ready to the military. And these international countries came together, they pledged aid, but the aid doesn't end up culminating because of uh, the distrust from the Western, distrust the government institutions overall and led the corruption and so on. But there's, I mean, this really like weird dynamic going on, you know, it's like, um, like uh, Hezbollah needs to, needs the West and they need to cooperate with the West, but at the same time, uh, this like, you know, Western um, and then the other thing that's happening, uh, Lebanese citizens, uh, including some Shiites, are finally starting to criticize Hezbollah. Um, and for the first time, the Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah is being criticized publicly. So he still he still has support, a patronage network. He has a network of fighters, as I mentioned, all over him, but there's some change of opinion. Um, so uh, before I mentioned that like, Hezbollah is very active in terms of uh, social services, they have uh, uh, backing of different groups in the country, but that's starting to change. There's a little crack in their support. 
Um, and then the other thing that's that's a, a special tribune, Lebanon was established by the nations in Lebanon in 2009 to investigate uh, who was responsible for the 2005 killing of Prime Minister Rafiq Had. Um, and this, I th- I think that if the port blast hadn't uh, occurred, um, I, I think this w- would have been a major issue. Um, they were trying for defendants from Hezbollah in absentia uh, since 2014. Only one was found uh, guilty and three would, uh, were acquitted. The relevance of the outcome is a little bit questionable. Um, it's kind of beyond the scope of this conversation, but it was something that Hezbollah saw as like a political issue and like something wasn't really like they, as I said, they blamed Israel. They didn't feel like it was something that they uh, that they wanted to get involved in and so on. But if you guys want to read more really good analysis, uh, the Council on Relations, and it's called Lebanon's Frustrating Judgment. Um, it's just like it's interesting as I saw things like the the tide is starting to turn against Hezbollah. And uh, one analyst was basically saying like they can't have their cake and eat it too. This isn't a like the way things are are. Um, are going around Lebanon means that they can't be embedded in the system that's corrupt and take over and co-opt all these uh, corrupt officials and expect that they'll still be in power. So um, just another thing that I want to uh, get your opinions on, is, um, like how this this how we think about this from an uh, international relations theory perspective. Like, I mean, it's been a while since I've taken IR class, but I think about like, you know, element of theory uh is uh, this whole concept that the state is the only actor in the international system that has a monopoly on the use of force. And when you think about Hezbollah, which is the only that is also armed, and it's parallel to that has been like dubbed a state within a state, um, it's like it really goes against this like fundamental tenet of IR theory, right? Um, Hezbollah at the same time deeply embedded into the Lebanese political system, and they have, as I said, a large network of supporters. So how do we reconcile these two issues, you know? Um, Hezbollah is not a state. It's become legitimized by being becoming integrated into the mainstream. But on the other hand, it participates in acts of violence and terrorism within the region and global. Um, and it's not like the sole act in the state, but it's managed to co-op members of the of the government. Um, so I'd love to get your opinions on that. See what you guys think about that. Yeah, I think the um, the issue of extra national organizations like this is something that the international world order has really struggled to deal with uh, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, I mean, you can see, uh, obviously, terrorism being one of the primary foci of, um, you know, Western security studies uh, is just an example of uh, the number of people who are putting their minds to try and uh, think about ways of dealing with these groups and um, working with them. Because... It's not something that is established in international relations theory, or, or it's a very new field relative. I mean, if you consider that uh, we've been, you know, conducting international relations in a certain way since, you know, the Peace of Westphalia is the, uh, the, the common metric for the uh, nation-state system. Uh, ever since that, we've been operating in a certain way, and, and suddenly you have, through technology and uh, the spread of people and ideas, you have these groups that are able to operate outside of the classical structures of sovereignty and um, the, the, the idea of the state. Um, and it's just, it's something that I, I, I still don't think that we're really good at dealing with. Um, and I think it's going to take a huge kind of reworking about, of the way we think about uh, political groups in order to, uh, you know, actively and effectively deal with groups such as Hezbollah. And um, I think uh, to, to kind of transition into a more concrete point, 
I would say that something that really scares the crap out of the Gulf states and uh, the Sunni states in general, especially Turkey, uh, is this idea of a Shia crescent being formed where if, you know, North Iraq, Kurdistan uh, is able to gain independence uh, and, you know, Syria kind of shifts in a more uh, Shia direction, you could have direct Iranian influence going all the way to the Mediterranean and, of course, Israel. Um, And so this is that is the the big um, international relations topic that on the macro scale, everybody is focused on the micro scale is how that plan is being carried out, right? Hezbollah with Iranian backing is, um, you know, effectively working to create this goal of a um, kind of a a unified Shia supply line that would allow an Iranian strike at uh, Israel and or eventually. And um, this obviously plays into a whole bunch of issues. Uh, The Soleimani killing, of course, was a big part of that um, uh, because the U.S., of course, accuses the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps of being uh, a terrorist organization itself. At the very least, it, it, it certainly does support uh, terrorist organizations uh, and, and groups like Hezbollah. So um, I think uh, it, both the micro and the macro have an important role to play in, in understanding this because uh, state-sponsored terrorism is a, a huge political force and very difficult to counter, as we can see. Um, I mean, Trump went so far as to crudely uh, utilize political assassination as a tool in an attempt to counter it. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, I will, I mean, aside from the moral and um, international norms surrounding that, uh, it's not a very effective strategy. Um, and I think we can see that in the popularity that Soleimani has gained as a martyr following his killing. Um, and also the strain placed on U.S.-Iraqi relations as a result of this um, strike outside of um, U.S. sovereignty. So I think it's very important to look at um, both the macro, the, the, the international relations and geopolitics that play into it, the, 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 the causes and conflicts that are being pursued, and then also the micro actors, the groups who are actually carrying out this uh, beyond simply state actors, it's very important to in this modern era to keep our eye on um, not just state actors, not just the press corps of you know the the uh, Department of State and 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 of other uh, uh, you know organizations who participate very actively in the global community and very directly in diplomacy. We need to look at these small groups. Uh, Hezbollah, uh, it, I mean, is obviously a big name, but there are a, a great number of uh, of smaller actors who play a huge role. Um, Hamas is a good example of another organization that started out as a, um, a group that uh, provided services and um, uh, things like healthcare and education at a very micro level where the state couldn't provide it. And through the use of that organization, of course, now we see um, Hamas has gained c- control of the Gaza Strip and uh, mm-hmm. remained to, uh, a huge uh, factor in, in um, Palestinian uh, politics. Yeah. Uh, Mm. You can, yeah, you can see the polarity in the Mexican cartels. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're not like uh, terrorist organizations that are stuff, but I mean, e- economically they, driven or, rather than uh, yeah, ideology yeah, or they, religion. But yeah, I mean, they can have they, similar results. Yeah, but they have this kind of of appeal to the population was neglected right. by the government and the state wasn't so present in these areas. I mean, you can see here in, in Rio, in Brazil, there are some 
this is we call favelas, right? It's, uh, it's characterized by the lack of presence of the state. I mean, they're renegated parts. They have no infrastructure, no basic rights. I mean, like schools, hospitals, or because Brazil have a uh, healthcare system. So I mean, you 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 don't have the the, the basic for uh, dignity of life. So and this. We we don't we don't have like a thing like cartels in Brazil, totally different from from Mexico. We have something we call factions. So we have these factions who provide uh, pleasure uh, activities, community uh, food, uh, even protection or some, some other things. I mean, but it comes with a big cost. Mm. Uh, the they act like a dictatorship places and the population is vulnerable to the, all the violence they perpetrate in these areas. And I mean, uh, like uh, Andrew says that IR theory lacks the sensitivity to study, analyze correctly this type of phenomena. I mean, when you have uh, uh, non-state actors which have uh, um, how can I say it? Uh, Army, arm capacity. I mean, uh, capac uh, capacity to 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 enforce things through guns and uh, arm, not army, but quasi army organizations. Because I was reading from my class on Thursday, a text that said that big problem of uh, international relation theory is because the biggest time. The biggest uh, creative time history of international relations was a period when uh, you have all you had only two big superpowers: the Soviet Union and the United States. And all the IR theory, especially in the mainstream, was produced in this in the places right in the shadow of the the bipolar. Bipolar. Okay, cut it. I start again. Like I polar it. Uh, of the time, so uh, IR theory don't doesn't cope with problems uh, more present in the third world or I mean global south. So we we have to we don't we can't I mean use theories that were formed and constructed constructed to analyze and and study states and traditional forms of force of diplomacy. And it's a one-fits-all theory. It deals with uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, or faction Brazil or Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. is 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 a very and and the problem is there. They are not a thing that we can ignore. I mean, they're they are so influential, and so uh, polit politically, uh, I mean, active, politically yeah. active as a or even more than a state like. Uh, Hezbollah has an army bigger than the Lebanese army. It's, it, it's not a thing we can mm. ignore, especially we that see the, this lack of, of knowledge and theory approaches, theoretical approaches to this kind of problem. I think this kind of really uh, brings a nice full circle of the conversation that we were talking about earlier about um, political coalitions and political power. When I was in when I was in Rio, uh, and I I went to a favela, and I had a, a a a woman who was from the favela take me around and show me and explain to me what life was like there. And one of the things that really stood out to me was uh, the 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 polit the politics of it, um, because from what she told me, uh, the the favelas are very much neglected. But when the election cycle rolls around and political factions need votes, 
they they strategically they form committees and strategically pick out which favelas they want to develop in order to best maximize the vote for for whatever uh, candidate or uh, you know cause they're trying to pursue. I think it's really interesting, uh, and that really does take a full circle because you know for the most part. Um, the government is competing with uh, these factions to provide services to people, and um, you know it's it, the the it, there's politics that plays into it, and and uh, the way that uh, power is kind of uh, amalgamated in society and then distributed. It's fascinating. could ask Bruno a question. So I can understand why the United States has its kind of legislation and a lot of it's regional, like cities uh-huh. versus rural and all yeah, yeah. demographic and everything like cultural religious factors. But like what is the factionalization and how does that happen? What are the key characteristics? Factionalization Brazil. Is that is that that you ask? Yeah, what what inspires these factions? No, but these factions are not like um Democrats versus or like uh traffic uh drug traffic gangs. Uh, are, are not like a, a political or sociological show uh, organized um, like a, like gangs but I mean we don't use the expression of gangs we use faction because I don't know it's how we it's like how we, irregular how po- we say this. They're, they're, they're political and economic organizations that are entirely irregular and uh, like not standardized they're, 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 they're groups of people working together right yeah they're For, not either. I think they're not even political. They're not even political. There's some internal politics, though. They provide... They, they, they... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some hierarchy inside of them. Mm-hmm. There are some, like, uh, they provide... Sometimes it's not always not that... I mean, it's not that different than making the favelas because we still see that people down there faces a lot of problem of sanitary issues or... I mean, it's it's not like a, a parallel government, it's, mm. it, but it's a parallel power. You know what that I'm right. saying? It's not parallel government, but it's a parallel go- uh, power. They don't want to spread the word of the drug traffic. They want they don't want to cast out the government of the state, thing like that. They're just like I'm doing my I'm doing my stuff and doing my things. Uh, I'll kill if you if I need. Uh, I'll rob if I, I mean that, that's kind of thing. It's more like a. a Profit and control of the area's business than like political or I mean trying to create an organization that can cope the 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 government this or the establishment. They're not anti-establishment movement. They're like uh, people who take guns to sell drugs, but in a more organized uh, way. But it's not so organized as we think as cartels are. Is that very different? They're more like specific. Yeah, they they so, they, they fill a, a vacuum in society. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. certain needs that aren't filled by the government, and so there's a economic window there to, and and not just economic. I mean, there's like obviously territorial control and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, there's there's a there's a window there for people to make money and provide you know necessary services. Honestly, we we could do a whole like someone should do a thing on favelas because yeah. it's so fascinating, so cool. Yeah, and I was actually gonna tell you guys it reminds me a little bit about of the the uh, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Mm-hmm. So that's like something that like I don't want to compare apples to oranges because like this is a lot of like different scenarios, but it is the idea of like finding vacuum, you know, in these communities and providing services. 
Yeah, that's that's and a like, super critical political tool to gain popular support. Yeah. I mean, who and can like who can be mad at you? Like, you know, oh yeah, like you're shooting rockets at Israel and you're uh, you know, you're you're causing my family to be less safe because of Israeli invasion, but like you give school to my kids and you provide healthcare to my family, like, you know, suddenly yeah, it's a I lot mean, easier to believe that one side is more justified than the other. Yeah, it, it, it was a matter when the ICL, great part of the Middle East, uh, like two years ago or something, they were providing water, food, and ple- uh, leisure, pleasure or something, pleasure activities to the population that never seen plummet water. There, there are people like, they never, they never got a uh, a government or something that care about them. So when there's the parallel power that brings all these basic needs, but in a high cost, I mean, what I got to lose? I, I, I live a high cost every day. I, I, I don't eat every day. Mm-hmm. So what would be the matter to a authoritarian, non, non-official organization take control of my area? Because I never been ruled, re-ruled because, I mean, government didn't care about me so mm-hmm. why did why should i care about the uh alternative to the government yep. it's, it's very sad because i mean there are a, a really authoritarian governments carries out the the rule of force i mean uh it's very sad but i mean when you have in theory you have laws in theory you have uh principles to follow but when this type of organizations that are not committed to any type of rules and they can do whatever they want it's pretty sad because it's a failure of of, of us completely failure of us yeah yeah for sure uh but and, and and that that failure of the state opens up a critical window that allows these non-state actors to you know gain strength and power then when these when these non-state act in power like an example you know with hezbollah even like again i don't want to compare apples to orange because like muslim brotherhood type of organization but when they becoming in power then they're following the same status quo the same corrupt the same you know like i said they're co-opting those government shows that will best serve interests so it's really like you know this i don't know this is just a difficult situation you know mm. to to say like that at the end of the day these groups are just trying to fulfill their own interests as well and when you have like an organization like hezbollah that's not loyal to lebanon that's loyal to iran has in the past pledged or recently you I, I, you have to like question whether like like how you these organizations like like Bruno said Hezbollah's military force is now stronger than these military the Lebanese military has cooperated with them in the past to like push out terrorists so it's just I feel like it's it's such a tricky question not asking you guys to solve it just something to like (laughs) like you know something to think about it makes you makes you really think about these other like supranational organizations and and how the regimes and the countries that they exist in have dealt with in the past you know for sure those are my Excellent. No, no, the, the really good analysis. Everyone, 100% spot on. Um, and I think the international community needs to do a lot more to kind of work towards dealing with a lot of these uh, groups and, and figuring out a way to address them, you know, because they, they don't really fit into, as we were talking about, they don't really fit into the classical understanding of international relations. It's not like the UN is recognizing Hezbollah or anything. You know, it's not like they get an observer seat. So, um, and not, not that they should or anything, but, you know, we need to start looking at new ways to address you know, the ways that we deal with these. It's just a trip. Like, you know, if, I mean, if they're engaging in, in violent acts abroad and like, you know, targeting certain areas, then how do you... Yeah. I mean, especially like from, from an Israeli perspective, uh, how do you respect Lebanese sovereignty while also 
trying to, um, you know, deal with your own security interests. And I think exactly. that's something that Israel has, I mean, I, I, Israel is, is, a, is a master at that because they've been dealing with it for their entire existence. Doesn't mean that their actions are any less questionable in terms of uh, yeah. <laughs> acceptability, but... Well, speaking of military action, I guess I'll hop into my this, my first segment on this show. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit here about the U.S. Space Force, uh, something that I think people have kind of taken a little bit as a joke, to be honest. Uh, but I'm going to make a case for why it's absolutely not just a, a stupid Trump passion project, and it's actually good space policy. Um, so I think first, uh, before I can make a case to defend the Space Force, I have to actually say what Space Force does. So, uh, Space Force is the newest branch of the U.S. military, uh, is formed in, uh, 2019 under the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act, uh, and its stated purpose under its, like, mission statement is to protect the interests of the United States in space, to deter aggression in, from, and to space, and to conduct general space operations. So, uh, as a service branch, it reports directly to the Secretary of the Air Force, so, um, the Space Force is under the Air Force in the same way that the Marines are under the Navy, pretty much. Uh, it's, it, um, they're kind of like a, a, a sub-branch, in a way. Um, and so, the, honestly, the push to create a separate uh, space-centered uh, service branch has been around for a long time. Um, and there's been various like attempts at it. Traditionally, uh, Space Command has been centered under the Air Force. Um, but as of recently, there's been some kind of uh, assumed conflict because the Air Force is obviously focused on its primary domain, which is air, um, not just air supremacy, but basically uh, the, the large operations that uh, the United States undertakes in the air. So, uh, you know, strategic fueling, uh, so having f- uh, fuel refueling flights flying around, having bombers in the air, uh, all that is traditionally the Air Force's realm, of course. And so there's um, worry that the Air Force will prioritize that over their space duty. Uh, and so um, there was bipartisan plans to create a Space Corps in 2017. Uh, and notice the difference in the titles. Personally, I'm much more a fan of the Space Corps. I like that sound. I think Space Force sounds a kind of silly. but And Space Corps just sounds more legit. Uh, and it better reflects how it's under the Air Force, just like the Marine Corps is under the Navy. It's like a smaller organization. And then, of course, if they were the Space Corps, you would call their servicemen servi- uh, Space Marines, and that's way cooler than calling them whatever they're going to call them. I think they're using naval ranks, so, um, you know, they'll be like seamen or whatever, whatever they come up with to, to call them, they'll, they'll call them. But I, I still think, for the record, Space Marine should be the way that it's called. Um, but so Trump comes around and he's looking for ways to increase his image. He's trying to be military friendly. And so he comes along this idea and, uh, his buddy Pence, Mike Pence, the vice president is, he happens to be a pretty big advocate for space flight. So for people who aren't familiar with Mike Pence, so, you know, people outside of the United States, probably Mike Pence is the most vanilla man that you can possibly imagine. He's literally so white, like he couldn't be differentiated from a piece of paper and like he just he's very homophobic and very racist and uh you know we don't have to go into all of that but he is like super into the nationalism <laughs> of space flight so pence uh was appointed the head of uh of the reactivated national space council which was a 
organization created by Bush Sr., I believe, um, to uh, basically have the executive branch of the United States. Uh, one moment, one moment, one moment. Yeah, no problem. Uh, oh, Andrew, you yeah, call please. down there in the United States Bush Sr. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, it's the first one. The first right? one, yeah, Bush, what yeah, was it? Uh, not Bush, how, how... not Bush 43, Bush 41, 40, 40 41. He's the 41st, yeah, but... right? 41, yeah, you, yeah, you call Bush Sr. the first, and the second one, how, how you're... Usually we call it George Baby W. Bush. No, yeah, baby bush. Baby bush. Yeah. Yeah, you no, could call it. Baby bush. <laughs> okay. Baby bush. No, 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 no. No, we, we call him. We call him. We call him W. We call him George W. Bush because he has. Okay. Yeah, but but yeah, he, sometimes <laughs> sometimes Bush Senior will be called George H. W. Bush because he has uh his his middle name is Herbert Walker. Right? That's right. So yeah, because him. It's confusing. We call. No, no, yeah, because in Brazil we have a, a way to differentiate between them. The first one we call would be a, a literal trans, a literal translation would be like Bush father. Oh, okay, and yeah, the yeah. The second one is Bush son. Right, right. Yeah, we we have we yeah, have like we, similar thing yeah. like junior, yeah. But I think that's why uh W got us a, a different middle name so that you know he wouldn't have to be a junior probably. No, yeah, yeah. We, we can, can ask Ellen about that because she's friends with him apparently. No, yeah. Uh, as I said, I said Bush senior. So okay, they don't say. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Senior, senior is the. It, it's the. It's the same. Yeah, yeah. No, just uh, a comment. To, oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, please. Uh, yeah, jump in with any questions uh, or anything. Fact. Yeah, yeah. Um. So basically, uh, the National Space Council is revitalized. Um, and Pence is placed on it. And their first kind of the first thing they do is uh work on creating the space force. The second thing they do is start working on uh, a plan to get the United States back to the moon by 2024, which is now known as the Artemis program. And that's its own cool thing, which maybe I'll one day do a, uh, I'll talk about a little bit, but for now we'll focus on the space force. Um, so that's kind of how the space force came to be. Um, and from that, you probably are, are thinking like, okay, well, why is this necessary? Um, well, let me just pose this to you. So the NASA budget for 2020 is $22.63 billion, which is, uh, I believe, the largest NASA budget as a proportion of U.S. GDP uh, since the Apollo program, which is the, the, when we went to the moon um, in the 1960s and early 70s. Um, so the Space Force budget for 2021, for the upcoming year, is going to be $15.38 billion. Now, if you look at that, so it's less than NASA. So, and, and NASA is, is it's, it's a pretty large government organization, but it's not, it's by no means like equitable to the DOD or anything. You know, it's not getting trillions of dollars. Space Force isn't getting that much money either. But if you look at the breakdown, um, it's pretty interesting. So uh, it basically breaks down into two sections. You have, so five, so five billion of the 15 billion is going towards operation, uh, maintenance of facilities, uh, and spacecraft and and procurement of all materials. So about a third of the budget is going to uh, like new actual physical operations, you know, launching spacecraft um, and uh, using them as like uh, you know in the case of spy satellites, having staff to uh, analyze the data and stuff like that. Uh, now the other two thirds of the budget, ten billion dollars, are straight put into R and D. Uh, research and development is a really important part of spaceflight because a lot of the challenges that we face out in space um, are new, novel, and we have to come up with new solutions. And this obviously leads to huge leaps in technology. So 
if you look at um, the Apollo program, a congressional inquiry after the Apollo program in the 60s and early 70s showed that for every dollar that the United States uh, Congress put into the Apollo program, it was returned 10 times. It put $10 back into the U.S. economy in terms of um, uh, not just just uh, economic stimulus, like uh, workers being paid and then spending that money uh, or, um, you know, uh, uh, buying components from U.S. companies; those are all good economic benefits. But the real benefit is this technological innovation that is spawned of this. Um, so your memory foam mattress, your computer mouse, all the all of these things are possible because of spaceflight and the money that the government invested in NASA. So a spinoff, right? Right, right. Spinoff. Yes, they're spinoff technologies. So, um, like, things that we just take for granted, like smoke detectors, um, what else? cordless tools. I'm looking at I just came up with a list of things that uh, um, NASA listed. But uh, computer miniaturization. Um, all these things um, were, you know, if not possible because of it, they were hastened along in their development by uh, funding that was uh, directed towards spaceflight. Um, and then not just that, but... Um, it quite literally saves lives um, back on Earth. Uh, for example, uh, you may have noticed the highway safety grooving on the sides of the highway. That that was actually a, a NASA invention to help reduce aircraft accidents on runways during when it's wet. Uh, and and those those uh, safety grooving have actually decreased highway accidents in the United States by eighty five percent. So it um, it's actually had a huge impact on people's lives in ways that, that they don't even realize. Um, and I mean, you know, I don't even have to tell you about GPS and stuff like that. Like, can you imagine uh, search and rescue teams without that, you know, vital aid provided by satellites? Um, so clearly the, the payoffs are huge. And so when people, are, when people say, uh, you know, why, why should we spend money on NASA? Why should we spend money on Space Force uh, when we have so many problems at home? Well, I mean, the answer is is pretty clear that um, the problems that we face out in space uh, will help us to develop methods and technologies that will aid us back on Earth uh, and, and in ways that we can't even imagine. Because when you're within your current frame of reference, you're you're only working with that, that kind of mindset and um, set of physical realities. When you're going to deal with something like going to Mars, which is something that is you know, incomprehensible to, to the human mind, you know, the, the scale involved with that and the number of variables that you have to deal with are immense. Uh, in order to deal with those, that technology can be reapplied back at home. And, and without that um, need, there never would have been uh, the development of that kind of technology. So it's very critical to, um, to uh, d technology development at home and problem solving at home to also um, further our space exploration. And that's not to say that we should ignore problems at home for this. Uh, that's just to say they're both critical components in uh, the way that we uh, function and grow our, our technolo technology and understanding of the universe. Um, so basically, that, that would be my point. But in order to kind of draw us more into the international relations side of it, I'd like to, I'm going to just look into the treaties that govern space. Because a lot of the time, people will make this claim about Space Force that like, you know, space shouldn't be for military. Like when Kennedy gave his speech, he, he spoke about it being a pe place for peaceful exploration. Um, and, and that kind of approach has kind of governed the way uh, the international community looks at space flight. 
And that's kind of culminated in a number of treaties. So the, the first major treaty was the Outer Space Treaty in 1967, uh, which uh, formalized uh, the, the, the way that uh, countries um, interact with each other in space. So technically the name of the treaty is the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. And that has 110 signatories in the UN, and, and 23 nations are, are awaiting ratification. So the majority of, of countries have signed on to this. And of course, whenever we're talking about spaceflight, it's important to recognize that uh, only a select few nations have human spaceflight capability. While most nations do have space programs, by far most of them do not have the ability to launch a rocket or even a person. Um, so, I mean, of course, the big actors are the US, Europe, um, China, and Russia. Uh, those are by far the, the, the biggest players. Japan is also a rising rising player in uh, spaceflight as well. So th those nations are the most important ones, but a lot of people have um, space programs and they'll, they'll fly uh, people on, uh, you know, plenty of extra nationals flew on the space shuttle and, and t uh, tons fly on Soyuz as well, the Russian. Um, so what this treaty did ultimately was prohibit nuclear weapons in space, was, was, was the ultimate uh, uh, product of that. So um, it didn't ban, like, just general military activity, pretty much only nuclear weapons. Um, and it also has, like, a, a subclause saying uh, that all celestial bodies and space are to be used for people peaceful purposes only. Uh, and that national sovereignty never extends into outer space, so countries can't claim territory. Um, and this is really important because people don't really like how vague that is. Uh, and it's been interpreted in all sorts of ways as to what it means for peaceful purposes. Uh, status quo right now, the interpretation is, uh, peaceful purposes includes military purposes that are for defense. So uh, any sort of um, like surveillance, satellites are seen as uh, security focused. Um, any sort of like, let's say that someone put up like a Reagan era Star Wars idea of um, like missile interception from space. Um, that would be considered defense because it's, it's not an offensive capability. Um, now what they wouldn't support would be like a, a nuclear bomb being put on a satellite and just there so it could drop whenever. Yeah, go ahead, Antonio. But it's according to international relations theory, isn't like defensive, aren't defensive measures like pretty much the equivalent of offensive measures? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, ultimate, yeah, there, there, there really is no difference. Uh, it, I, I, it comes down to a, um uh intent basically which is impossible to prove so like anybody can say like oh yeah that uh that uh you know massive weapon that i've put there that that's for my defense like just in case you know if someone invades me i can use it um but so it's it's very vague and, and of course require as much of international law is and, and it requires a lot of um lawyering and, um well ultimately it's up to states to enforce it themselves so um it doesn't really mean much, but it is a uh, symbolic statement. Um, so, yeah, it, it doesn't ban just general uh, militarization, but yeah, it, it does ban nuclear weapons, which is a big deal. Like, don't get me wrong, that's 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 super awesome. Um, but there, the other thing that's critical about the treaty is that it doesn't say anything about resource extraction. So it says you can't claim land, but it doesn't say you can't like take all the resources out of it and, and do whatever you want with it. So that, that those are areas that need to be flushed out in future uh, uh, legal action in the international. Um, and it's something that is a, is a really big rising field and something that I think people are really going to have to start paying attention to. Space policy is going to become very important uh, in the next few decades. 
Um, yeah, I recommend y'all guys to watch Colin. I've already recommended Andrew. He saw, he told us that he was a big fan of science fiction. So I recommend him this, but you guys should watch a show called For All Mankind. It's, it's an alternate history uh, series like um, the Soviet Union puts the first man on the moon. It's not a spoiler because it's like right on the first episode, right on the beginning. First, the Soviet Union puts the first man on the moon and the race, the space show, the space race never ends or something like this. It's, it's continuing and this these matters of territory claiming and mineral resources and I mean all these themes that Andrew approached here in the series are are approached too and it's very fun it's very cool because I mean you see the like a, a materialization of the idea and I mean I love alternate stories mm. I have I had a, a a professor on during my during my college that said that in history you can ask if if like uh if Europe never discovered the, the Americas. Like, you can ask this kind of question. But I love asking this kind of question. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, every uh, every historian, like, revisionist history uh, is, like, the bane of all historians. And at the same time, it's like the moth to the flame. You know, it's ever yeah. You can't help but ask that question. Because I think history yeah, is a tool that begs to be used. This. Yeah. No, I, I love to ask. I know it will be like a... Uh, I don't know, uh, waste of effort to think about it because it will never happen because, I mean, the past is already in the past. But it's very, it's very curious to, to create scenarios on your mind. Uh, it's, I, I love this type of, of thinking. Not because I'm, I'm like uh, studying this type of thing, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. It, it's yeah. cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so following, following that treaty, um, there were a couple other kind of uh, corollary treaties to back it up. So there was the there's the rescue agreement which came quick after, which basically everyone who signed on, uh, basically you're obligated to provide all possible assistance to an astronaut should they land in your territory, um, and then you'll be compensated adequately for whatever um, whatever help you give them. Uh, and people don't really like that law because it's not really clear as to who is an astronaut. It just says astronaut. So you know, is a space tourist an astronaut? is like you know space travel is going to become more common uh, going forward so you know inevitably we're going to have just everyday civilians going into space and so how how is that going to um you know be interpreted going forward is a big question uh th so then then there's another uh treaty that came after that the space liability convention which basically came about after so there was a soviet um spy satellite uh, cosmos 954 uh, which had a nuclear reactor on board. And uh, basically they lost control of the satellite and it ended up re-entering over northern Canada. And it, it ended up scattering uranium uh, all, and uh, fissile material all over Canada, uh, which isn't much of a difference anyway since a lot of uranium comes from Canada. But luckily no one lives there. So um, no one was really hurt, I don't believe. But it did cause Canada to get pissed off. And so uh, this treaty was created that stated that... Uh, a state has responsibility for any space object launched from their territory. So uh, if your satellite crashes in someone else's territory and kills somebody, you're liable for that. Um, and then finally, there was, a, there was another treaty that, that um, basically is called the Registration Convention, which requires uh, all uh, space agencies to furnish the UN with details 
about the orbits of space objects so that uh, there's a centralized uh, like tracking. Uh, and then there, there was another one that, that failed called the Moon Treaty, which um, was intended to basically uh, govern uh, resource uh, um, consumption and stuff like that. But it never ended up going through. And I think the only people who actually signed on were people, were some of those countries who didn't have any orbital capability. So it's kind of just um, a, a symbolic gesture. Uh, and so there is some international uh, law infrastructure in place around space policy, uh, but obviously there's a lot more that needs to be done. And it's a field that I have personal interest in, of course, um, but I'm, I'm really curious to see going forward how countries deal with this as it becomes more common. And I think that's one thing that we can be certain about moving in the future is that it will become more common. Um, to bring it back to the Space Force, uh, the reason that I think... A lot of people have a first instinct to say, you know, oh, Orange Man bad, like he made Space Force, it's, it's you know, it's, it can't be good. But um, I think ultimately what this means is that all this stuff was happening already under the Air Force. So no new duties have been created or added to the U.S. military. Um, it's basically just been re, uh, repurposed, reformatted into a new branch. And ultimately, um, you know, you could make a lot of uh, military science arguments for why it's important. But to me, as an international relations scholar, uh, I think ultimately it just makes it easier for Congress to put money into space uh, development. Um, ultimately, um, or, or not Congress, sorry, uh, the executive branch, because NASA is directly funded by Congress. Congress in the United States system has the power of the purse. They're uh, the only people in the government that can borrow money and, and set a budget are is uh, Congress and specifically the House of Representatives, where all budget um, bills are, uh, they have to begin. Um, so basically, this is an easier way for a president to put more money into space exploration because while Congress has to approve a budget, which you know, when you have hundreds of lawmakers arguing over what is worth spending money on or not, space exploration often gets sent to the cutting room floor as an unnecessary expense. With the military, which is directly under the executive branch, the president could uh, put as much money into that as they wanted to. So um, you could pull money away from other areas in the military and spend it on space research and development, which I personally believe to be a much better investment than most other areas of military research and development. Um, and ultimately has many more applications in the civilian world than most other uh, areas of the military. So I, I just ultimately, I think it's a good thing. I think uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way to kind of uh, also give legitimacy to the field of uh, space warfare. Uh, um, it is going to become important. Space ultimately is the, the highest ground. You know, you can't, there's no better place to conduct reconnaissance and there's no safer place um, in terms of a military science standpoint. So space is ultimately very critical and the defense of our uh, space-based assets such as GPS and other communication networks is of paramount importance. Uh, like we can't under, we can't overstate the importance that uh, these space-based assets play. Uh, imagine if you got in your car and uh, you didn't have GPS and stuff like that. Obviously, most of your cell phone GPSs work uh, with the cell network in tandem to GPS satellites, but that that's another story. Um, so ultimately, I think I think it's a good thing, and I, I hope that it leads to, to further development and, and leading us down a better path, um, a, a more technologically competent and uh, like space exploration looking. Because ultimately, that that is that that's that's our future is expanding out into the stars and, and to other planets. Because 
ultimately we only got one earth and any one thing can happen to to end life on this planet and the only way to ultimately survive as a species is to ultimately settle on other planets so i think it's important to to keep that in mind as a as a long-term goal it only takes one asteroid just randomly showing up to end everything so um obviously that's the long-term goal but in the short term there's plenty of life-saving and uh economically stimulating technological advancements to be created uh, and hopefully this is just one step more towards uh, creating uh, those technologies. Andrew, I was wondering, do you know um, to what extent like uh, SpaceX is with Space Force now? Because I, I think I remember seeing something about that a while ago. Yeah, so they, they SpaceX recently won a huge um, uh, DoD um, and Space Force uh, contract. And, and these contracts are massive. Like they can be, you know, billions and billions of dollars. So it's, it's a big deal. Uh, and and in terms of spaceflight, um, the 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 Department of Defense and the NROL, the National Reconnaissance um, Organization, is they pay very well. They they have a lot of money to throw around, and um, they want their stuff to work, and they want it to get up there safely. So they're willing to pay top dollar, and they're very reliable. So they're sought, much sought after contracts in, in terms of uh, the spaceflight. And I was wondering what their role was because I know research. Um developing rockets and so on so i want to see if they fit and so yeah on. oh absolutely it, it all it all fits together yeah, yeah. no it's um it, it's super interesting to me and i think it's a it's really going to become increasingly important in the field of international relations um because right now the the field of like space law and stuff like that is very uh undeveloped so um it's going to be interesting to see how um we as humans collectively decide to go about um not just regulating, but um, kind of creating the um, the norms around what's going to be acceptable. Because soon it won't just be the U.S. and, and Russia and, and China. Soon it will be many, many, uh, ultimately millions of people. So we're going to have to come up with systems to deal with it. Government, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. It's like, I mean, now I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's... It's on. It's not a big deal. Like people, people are like, oh, you know, Orange Man bad. Like I was saying, but um, really, the bottom line is, Space Force isn't doing anything new. Uh, it all used to be under the Air Force, so it's basically just now getting its own name. And also, like you said, when you learn, like you mentioned, the stuff that under NASA, you know, an effort to the space. Program. It's really interesting to see. So it's weird to see the direction of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly excited. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt a really, uh, a really good segue here. So John F. Kennedy, the man who set us on the path to the moon, he was an Irish Catholic. So uh, I think he might have something to do with Bruno's point here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think it would, would do the transition from the Leila topic about the oh yeah yeah see, I, I thought about well we'll see i i thought about going with like a rockets approach but but then we kind of moved mm-hmm. away from the the, Hamas I mean, the connection was like <laughs> so john f kennedy the man okay yeah well, great man great man okay was was nice uh okay uh before i sign my topic let's go back in time a little in last year april a journalist called I think in how to spell it, uh, Lyra McKee was shot in a city called Derry, located in Northern Ireland. So as you can imagine, it raises some concerns. 
Uh, since Northern Ireland is a country with a low rate of criminality and homicides, and historic perspective of the island, no reason homicides make you remember from the IRA, uh, Irish Republican Army. So yeah, M uh, McKee's death was claimed by a group called the New IRA. Uh, but you can think, oh, but probably it's an isolated case. You cannot jump into it so fast. But it turns out we can and worse and worse we must because i mean i said so because this month more specifically i still this month more specifically in day 18th 10 people were arrested by a joint operation of the north and uh, carried out by the northern ireland irish and british policy uh, police due to this group suspected connection with the new ir so 10 people was arrested uh, with alleged connections, uh, but probably it's not a overspoken or overtalked uh, subject. So a lot of people probably don't know what IROA stand for or what is it. So I'm give a little context here. First, the Irish Republic Army, and it's a par paramilitary group uh, which seeks the establishment of a republican of a republic. Uh, and the at uh, uh, the end of the British rule of Northern Ireland and the reunification of Ireland. Uh, for those who doesn't know, the islands of Ireland is divided into two independent countries: Northern Ireland, whose Belfast is the capital, it's part of the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, independent from the United Kingdom, in whose capital is Dublin. So this army was created in 1990. Uh, it was used. It used to be an armed force to render British rule in the Ireland ineffective. This group wreaked havoc in the Iceland through the 20th century, killing more than 1,800 people from 69 and 94 in the last century. So the most infamous attack happened in 1972, known as the Bloody Sunday. If you guys know, Oh, there is a YouTube a song called Bloody Sunday, Bloody... No, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I mean, uh, yeah, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, song by a YouTube. And it's a very emotional song. We marked the Irish history. And the song starts like, like this. I can't believe the news today. I can't close my eyes and make it go away. How long, how long must we sing this song? How long? How long? Because tonight we can be as one tonight. So, I mean, uh, even though it's, uh, it's a nationalist group, everybody's still Irish. Uh, they, Bonavox was uh, singing about this, this hurt that present in this country for so long. I mean, the group was created in 1919 and just only 2005 was officially gave up on the government campaign, but we're going to get there. Uh, so the re the religion matter uh, beyond the national identity and one also plays a role in this dynamic because the the army was formed mainly by Catholic people as a way to fight discrimination from Protestant political elite and underpinned by the British government. I mean, uh, in 2005, the, the army announced that they had ended its armed campaign and instead would pursue only peaceful means to achieve its object. So any attack claimed by a group that called itself IRA would be declared as at least no one has given up on armored confront. So 
what it's IRA and that's why it's new new IRA so if, to those who doesn't know about uh this group and the other things so what's back probably uh i mean i was reading and actually it never went away and reports has shown the new IRA activity has been on the rise since 2007 so before brexit is so uh is the new IRA a, a completely separate organization from the IRA or uh, is it just a catch-all term for uh, like splinter groups that are pursuing violent means? No, yeah, because uh, what I'm according was uh, according to what I was reading, um, I can't say if there's a new separated branch of the old one, but I, it's kind of renewal, mm-hmm. kind of revival. You know, it's not a, it's not a you you, you because it's very gray in this area. You can just say, oh, it's a completely new one because I mean the heritage inspiration is very strong. So uh, I think it's a uh, it's very uh, how can I say it? Uh, no, it's it it's it feedbacks all the time. So this new one is inspired by the old one. And so the old one, I mean, the, the history and all the data uh, inspired this new generation, how to act, uh, what to fight for. So uh, it's a two-way relationship. So, okay, um, it's been on the rise since 2000, 2007. So we should say that this movement is not closely re- related to the Brexit, people you uh, to say. It's been more related to the condition of the Northern Ireland itself than any other factor. We can see a deteriorated situation in the country, high levels of unemployment, especially among urban male youth. But it should be underlined that there is no study revealing that the casual between unemployment and uh, unemployment rate and radicalization in Northern Ireland, I mean, there is no data uh, uh, proving a strong correlation between these two 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 factors i mean what's been seen is a strong uh problems uh, concentrating uh this problem is concentrating in the highest level in the areas with the highest level of employment and i mean uh i don't know especially personally i don't think it's uh i don't think it's only a coincidence i mean there's a lot of but oh but I don't want to jump into it. So let's let me let me conclude my my thought. According to the to an article that I was reading on foreign policy, I was uh, the working class people, notably the Catholic share of it, said that the problem they used to face 30 years ago, uh, caused by the segregation, discrimination towards toward them, uh, weren't weren't changed even after this process. So when you look to the numbers, you can see that indeed the Catholic the Catholic share uh, of the population faces more problem with unemployment. According to the uh, 2018 census, uh, 7.5% of Catholic people were unemployment against 57 in the Protestant part. I know looking this way doesn't seem a big deal, but you, you know, at the biggest city with the most Catholic population, the capital Belfast and Derry, at the city where the journalists were shot, uh, these rates soar to 11%, and among youth Mayo, it's even higher around 2017. So it's a uh, a big deal i mean not in the national national 
Evo, but in local ones, it's a, a big problem. But it's not by religions, no, only, only by religion. It's an economic issue. The new IRA is getting its new number from, uh, it's a new member from, I mean, academics say there is an issue concerning mental health as well. Uh, quoting the guy that I read in the article, they, he said that they can't deal with the factor that they struggle to get work, get a house, have a diseducation. People do certain different types of drugs to escape the reality. So this mental issue is especially caused by the post-conflict trauma. I mean, the Bonavox songs, uh, he sings, can't close my eye, can't make it go away. How long? How long will this song? So, I mean, it's a problem that... Uh, Runs across generations. It's not, uh, uh, it's not, I mean, it's not limited to only a, a part of the people. I mean, it's the collective memory of the, the island. It's not, uh, uh, isolated case. I mean, the, uh, so, I mean, if you, if you think that the greatest irony action was like in the 1780s, People who live in this era are like between 40 years old today. So they influence the society around them. They're still alive and their sons and daughters and so on. So it's a, it's a very recent, very alive phenomenon that's happened down there. So there's a book called Conflicts in Mental Health, which says that at least uh, 34,000 people in Northern Ireland suffer with post-traumatic stress disorder and more than... Uh, 210,000 people suffer with anxiety disorder that can be traced as a result to the trouble times, the period with the more activities of this. So while the level of the drug using are not so high as today in the, during the trouble times, I mean, the biggest explanation is because there was a great presence, the British Army and the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So it's like a, the uh, Northern Ireland police at the time. And the presence of these forces were, were mitigating by or mitigating the use of drugs and other type of uh, illicit activities. Although the paramilitaries uh, work under the guise of eliminating drugs and protecting local youth, because in um, I mean, as uh, we said in the Leila take, I mean, how these non-official, non-governmental institutions uh, give fundamental basic needs like uh, education or social security and stuff. This group, this paramilitary group, does the same, but. They operate at the same time a rudimentary system of ju justice that them position them alone as judge as yeah position them alone as judge. I mean, they make justice with their own hands. Can be very problematic because uh, the last century was more than more than thousand people were killed by their actions alone. So. This underlying social problems has the paramilitary resurgence, but the Brexit threatens to exacerbate the entire city by giving the militants a sharper political focus. Northern Ireland voted by a majority to remain the EU 2016, and the Republicans, Republicans, I mean, the people that want a republic system, no Republicans, an American way of thinking. Uh, Small R Republicans, as we say here. What? Small R Republicans, like lowercase yeah, r. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they crafted a narrative to the reading of the Irish. Uh, and I mean, the ROA is causing a lot of problems. Not only these journalists were shot or uh, the 10 people that were arrested, 
But the new array also blaming him in March for the packages containing explosives, the number of targets in England and Scotland. And January, uh, it was implicated in a car bomb outside the courthouse in Derry, where the journalist was shot. And I mean, uh, this rising concerns because uh, some years ago it was exceptions, but now it's coming like the new normal. And increased parliamentary violence uh, is rising. I mean, but the problems that gave birth to this generation of militants, Republicans show no signs of abating because the, the unemployment is still raised, the use of drugs is still raised. And regardless how Brexit, I mean, uh, the, this article that was written was before Brexit. So the guy says, quote, I mean, regardless of how Brexit turns out, Republican paramilitaries have again become a fixture of life in Northern Ireland. So it's a problem. As Lila said, I'm I'm not optimistic to be solved because I mean you have this uh, factor of identity which is very strong and and very hard to cope. And this uh, generation that's been how can I say it, upset by the by the the government and the policy that failed to provide them the basic needs and the, frust the frustration that grows not only in them, but I mean, in the modern societies today, especially the democratic ones, uh, and can create, I mean, a hotbed for popular, very dangerous threats to how with society today. Yeah, I think luckily uh, the Brexit withdrawal uh, agreement uh, maintained an open border. I remember that was a huge concern was that uh if there was like a hard brexit um there could be a reinstate reinstated border between northern ireland and ireland ireland being an eu state so and that could reinstate tensions because the the economies uh, and cultures of northern ireland and and the republic of ireland are so intertwined uh there's freedom of movement um and it's one market so uh for they may be two countries but for intents and purposes uh i mean people can just walk across the border and go buy someone i know like dairy farming is a big deal um in the north of ireland so being able to go across and, and buy your milk and then bring it back to, uh, uh, you know to supply it to people in northern ireland it's a big deal i mean that's just one facet of the economy there's a million other goods and services that need to pass freely and any kind of disruption of that is going to be catastrophic to the economies of uh, both northern ireland and the republic of ireland um so when I was an undergrad in D.C., the, the case studies that we always came back to with ethnic conflict were obviously the, the troubles in Northern Ireland and Yugoslavia. And I think a lot of that was because a lot of the professors that I had were uh, participating in those conflicts, like studying them, and then they'd retire. Because th those are the you know, 80s and 90s conflicts, uh, like premier uh, ethnic conflict studies. Like everybody who's in that field was studying those. So uh, I got a, a healthy dose of, of those conflicts. Uh, in terms of uh, time spent studying and reading about them. But from what I understand, um, the religious nature of the conflict was actually p uh, played up a lot more than it was important in Ireland. It was very important to um, the Catholics in the United States because there are more Irish Catholics in the United States than there are in Ireland. Um, that was the result of the, the large-scale famine in the 19th century that uh, you know sent a lot of immigrants to the United States from Ireland. Um, and so from what I understand, uh, the religious nature was played up uh, because Catholics in the United States also felt persecuted uh, by the Protestant majority in the United States. And the IRA was largely funded by donations from Catholic churches, uh, people like putting, putting money into the plate to, to donate. 
and, and um, that was a huge source of revenue for the, the IRA. Um, and so, from my understanding, they played up the religious aspect uh, despite um, to gain more support in the United States, despite it largely being a nationalist conflict, much more than religious. I mean, the, the um, Irish government in uh, the, the Republican government isn't, uh, you know, exceptionally religious. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, a, a normal liberal parliamentary system. I so, um, yeah, I, I always I always thought that was so interesting, the way that um, the, the, the way the conflict is perceived can change depending on the, the intended audience and, and, and the purpose that they play in the conflict. No, yeah, I, I totally agree. Let, let me activate my camera because the only way. No, yeah, uh, totally correct. I mean, uh, I mean uh, my my team, but in Brazil, I mean, this case is not so common. We 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 do mm -hmm. not talk about. Yeah, I, I think I think it's better known in the U.S. because of the large uh, Irish population. Irish community, yeah. yeah. I mean, in Brazil, when you're talking about ethnic conflicts or identity conflict, it's more like Palestinian, Israel, right, right. or sometimes India, but. Uh, our, because our way for us was like a dead thing. Mm -hmm. because well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, certainly 10 years ago, people were sort of like, oh, it's dying down. And, and I know Brexit was provoking fears that it could restart, but it seems to be oh, yeah. staying low. Yeah. It's not a, a, how can I say it, out of concept, you like think mm -hmm. that uh, the ROA activities and I mean, even the ETA, ETA the uh, best country right ta probably yeah yeah no they're they're cool too i mean that could be they they could be their own um like basque uh, independence movements that would be a good segment yeah. to do because they like they're oh, so yeah. co they're cool they'll be like they'll be like okay we're gonna bomb this building at 12 o'clock everybody get out they're cool they're uh like an organization terrorist organization that kill a lot of people they're 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 they're, they're cooler than most terrorist organizations they, they, they've like tried to be a lot less uh a lot less deadly it's a lot more uh, political yeah no yeah uh, and personally i like to i prefer not prefer but i like to like more I can to talk about these uh, terrorist organizations form from uh, developed countries because mm -hmm. when you think about terrorism, you think uh, I mean Boko Haram in Nigeria or uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon or any other groups that are from uh, the global south or right. I mean poor countries. So it's it's pretty great to remember people that the terrorism is not a. a Slam only problem or non-Christian societies. Uh, you have uh, terrorism in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, with IRA in the Spain. I mean, we have the case like a Utoya Iceland, Norway. So it's a, a, a very interesting topic to mm -hmm. see to to study because they act different. The, the, they're not the same. I mean, and the way that they organize themselves or the way that they they perpetrate their activities it's 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 very i mean uh, neglected yeah for sure because, because i mean they they they've been uh, dwindling from from the 90s it, it's it's not a uh and also active but i mean they're still worth it to study and oh yeah and how and how the 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 legacy they they left for other generations uh affects people today oh for sure 
And I think the U.S. is, like, very distinctly aware of domestic terrorism. I mean, we've had a huge problem here for a long time, uh, specifically white nationalist terrorism. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously the Oklahoma City bombing was a, a very big and, and prominent event. But I think probably the most overlooked and probably one of the largest terror campaigns in history, uh, and that is the, uh, the Jim Crow era South and the uh, systematic uh, terrorization of black communities in the South uh, with outright violence and, uh, you know, huge uh, lynchings attended by, you know, sometimes thousands of people. I mean, it, it was very well coordinated and uh, uh, executed terror campaign. And, and that's really the only way to, to talk about it. Um, so I, I, I think that's such a good uh, uh, way to tie it up into that. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Antonio. Start being called, I feel like maybe only on the more left do people call it terrorism. When did that start becoming, is it mainstream now to call it terrorism or no? It, so yet. terrorism it? studies in general is a surprisingly understudied field. It, it's only yeah. been in the last like 20, 30 years that it's really started to be studied. And mostly in the context of Islamic terrorism, because uh, obviously that that has been like a, a governmental issue. But yeah, um, yeah. the problem is so big that you don't have a theoretical widely accept concept of what is terrorism. Mm. Don't yeah. have it. It's it's it's, it's yeah. It's, there are many definitions to to what it is. I think the the standard the standard definition is. Um, let me let me see if I can if I can get it correctly here. So. A terrorism is when it's there's a non-state actor attacking a soft civilian target for the purposes of political change. So all of those have to be uh, in um, or actually, sorry, not just political change. It can also be political stagnation as well. Terrorism can be used to maintain a political status quo as well, um, which is the case of the Jim Crow South. But yeah, so. It really depends on what you're looking at and how you're defining terrorism. I think looking at uh, the Jim Crow era South as a terror campaign is becoming more and more mainstream. It's not traditional to look at it that way, but I think it's the most useful way to look at it. All right. Well, so we're running pretty long here, so I don't want to. I don't want to keep everyone. Um, and I also just realized that um, we didn't do the number of the week at the beginning of the episode. So maybe, maybe we'll get it added to the front. Maybe we won't. I don't know. But Bruno, I hear you have a number. What's the number this week? Uh, the number of the week is seventy. Seventy-eight. So my first instinct is a percentage. B could be not. I feel like it has something to do with WeChat. Mm. That's what it was the last few times of Bruno. 
<laughs> there's a, there's a theme going on here. Yeah, I don't know. Guess the percentage as well. Percentage. Mm. Mm. No, no. Eight, 78. 78 would be the age of Joe Biden if he ah, was elected. Right. Oh, that is a really yeah. good one. Very clever. I should have yeah, guessed that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah he would yeah. he would be the oldest president of United States to be elected. <laughs> okay, boomer. 78. Okay, boomer. Real boomer. Uh, yeah. I mean, Trump. Yeah, I don't Trump think he is has... a boomer, right? When so. was he born? Seventy-eight. Seventy-eight is too old. It's he's it? pretty old. Old. I mean, uh, it. Yeah, in he's... our society. In our society, we don't have to like. Uh, he's surprised because the expectancy of life in developed countries are around eighty. So older people uh, getting higher place in politics. Uh, even older, yeah, because I mean, only only old people do politics today. I mean, majority. Well, so, hopefully it's changing. People, yeah, it hopefully yeah. it changes. <laughs> yeah, uh, even older people would be more common in politics. It's, mm. it's, and uh, I think it's a challenge for him. Challenge, I mean, not a challenge at all because I mean, he's white, rich, and and he's straight. So and he's I run mean, for president, like. You know, yeah, five other times. So, uh, but I mean, to make people to trust him because he's mm -hmm. very old. I mean, Trump is old as well. I mean, he's in seventies. I don't know how old exactly. I, mean, I think he's seventy. Is he seventy-four? Seventy-four. Maybe yeah. Four. So I mean, it's, he's a couple yeah, years younger. Years, yeah. Three years yeah. younger. So. What are you talking about? He's still in his early days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To yeah. So I mean, I don't know if there is a probably there is a, a old leader, but I I think we have to get used it to even older people, a new type of old, a new level old people. Uh, next level older. old people. <laughs> yeah, next level. Uh, since we have a, a, a average of expenses uh, growing. I mean, it will be the new norm, and coronavirus mm -hmm. bring new things too. Mm. That's for <laughs> sure. That's for sure. Well, does anybody else have any closing closing statements to make? Stay involved, everybody. We'll be back next yeah. week. And yeah. and and if everybody listen to this, if anybody listen to this, please give your feedback wherever you got your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Especially to a new, new cover. Uh, uh, tell us if you like it or not. If you like another color, you can work on. Yeah, that's that's definitely that's doable. Well, uh, thanks for a great episode, guys. I'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. See you next week, everybody. We'll be back next week, a new episode and fresh topics for discussion. Please like and subscribe on your chosen podcast platform and stay safe.